Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd Ixonball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. Caleb's being a slave driver today, guys. He's making me record a lot of stuff. And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we're talking with Jonathan Merritt, who has written one of the best books Uh-oh. of 2018. Is this going to be make your list? Oh, it's making the list. Oh, it's making the list. And you may be thinking, man, there is like a ton of like Caleb saying best books of 2018. One, that's because there's a lot of people writing 2018. L- ridiculous amount. And, and we keep finding more. And we've just gotten better at picking books, too. That's so, true. But Jonathan is an award-winning writer on <coughs> religion, culture, and politics. He's currently a contributing editor for The Atlantic and The Week as well. He is also the co-host of one of our favorite podcasts, The Faith Angle. And he has re- recently written, actually today, the book yeah. releases, Learning How to Speak God from Scratch. Oh, and Caleb, while Caleb was reading this book, um, he, like, all the time was like, dude, check this out, check this out. So, he's a nerd, but it must be really good. It's super good and i had a great conversation with him you unfortunately were not able to make i don't remember why i couldn't be there i was being a bum probably just probably. just just assume that i was probably sleeping i was taking a nap yeah um anyway before we get into the conversation we have our learner's corner recommended resource of the week so i have the resource this week caleb's not peddling his podcasts this week um i have an app for you Many people I hear all the time, they're like, Todd, like I would love to be able to make social media posts that looked like cool. And I used to have the same thought and I found a way to fix that. Um, so if you do anything where you're on Instagram or Facebook and you're doing pictures and you need a way to, to make them look cooler, there's an app called Word Swag that you should just download and use that all the time because it's lit, as the kids say. Um, it does all sorts of stuff. You, you can upload your own pictures to it. You can put text on it. You can put all sorts of things on it. Or you can search all sorts of free pictures and make your own junk. It makes you look legit. Too legit to quit, Caleb. There we go. Word That's swag. Our, Word swag. Word swag. That's our Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week. Now, as I mentioned earlier in this episode... We have Jonathan Merritt on the podcast today, and it's going to be a great episode conversation that you're not going to want to miss. And the best way that you can let us know what you took away from this conversation is by leaving us a rating and writing a review of the podcast on whatever podcast player you use, whether that's Stitcher, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, whatever. However you hit us up on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, whatever it might be. Let us know what one of your big takeaways from this episode was and let us know how we can continue to improve and give you guys a better podcast as well. Do it. So without any further ado, here is our conversation with Jonathan Merritt. Well, Jonathan, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. You know, you recently um, wrote a book called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, and I'm just interested what led you to want to write this book? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I had written um, three books, published three books uh, by the time I was 30. And I really felt like I had, I mean, how much wisdom does a 30-year-old have to offer the world? You know, I had offered 
about 150,000 words worth just in book format and felt like I didn't really have anything else to say. And so I uh, had some publishers calling, what are you going to do next? And I just said, you know, I'm not going to write again, period, until I feel like I have a message that is so important that I have to share it. And uh, that was about five years ago. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, I moved from the Bible Belt to New York City and experienced really a culture shock in a lot of ways. Most of those ways were expected. What was unexpected was when I ran into a language barrier. Not, not that I couldn't speak English anymore. I could still order a hot dog from a, a street cart, but I could no longer speak God. That when I was interacting now with people who came from various walks of life, who didn't work from the same script that I worked from, who didn't share common definitions of spiritual words, I found it was really difficult to use sacred words and to have spiritual conversations. And so I just stopped using them and having them all together. And what I found out uh, as a result of that process was that there are tens of millions of people just like me mm-hmm. who have fallen silent, who, who now are in need of what I call spiritual speech therapy. And that's when I decided it was time once again to pick up the pen and to write another book. Yeah. And even just going off of that, one of the things that really stood out to me at the beginning of the book is just this stat that about 7% of, I think, Americans have spiritual conversations on like a one-time-a-week average. Why, why is it that people aren't having these types of conversations more regularly? You know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of answers uh, to that question, but I'll tell you what I just find interesting about that stat first, which is I, I was so shocked by that stat because you in in America we have a culture that boasts widespread religiosity. Uh, over seventy percent of Americans uh, claim to be Christian, for example, and yet we're not talking about things related to that. And that's interesting because we talk about things we care about. Mm-hmm. You know, you you've got a friend or a coworker, and they're always happy to tell you about their children, even maybe if you don't want to hear about their children, (laughs) they're happy to tell you about them. But why? Because they love their children. They care about their children. And yet, in the United States, despite 70% of people claiming to be Christian and even more claiming other faiths, we do not feel confident talking about these things. And I just found that interesting because we claim to care about these things, but we don't talk uh, about these things. Now, if you, if you look at the, the reasons for this, there are uh, really a litany of them. There, there are people who say that, um, that sacred words have become politicized. So, you know, we, in the age of Donald Trump, we have really a, a resurgence of uh, a partnership between religious leaders and political leaders. And so you have political leaders who are talking like politicians and uh, who are talking like uh, pastors. And then you have Mm -hmm. pastors who are talking like politicians. And all of this language gets kind of uh, pushed together and it feels very partisan. And so people won't 
won't use that language because they're not, they don't want to be associated with everything that that language is tied to. You've got many people who say, you know, if, if I use this language, uh, people may think I'm extremist. They'll think I'm a religious fanatic, particularly among millennials. They're saying, I don't want to sound extremist, so I don't want to have these conversations. Uh, the number one reason that people don't use these, wor these words, they don't have spiritual conversations, uh, is because they, they say that, well, when, we, when I talk about religion or spirituality, it always seems to create conflict. It always seems to start fights. And so um, there are a litany of reasons why, and, and I conducted a poll in this book. In fact, the 7% stat that you mentioned is from that poll. I conducted a poll of just over 1,000 Americans, and I asked them, how often do you speak God? 7% say they speak God regularly, about a once a week. I thought that number would go up when I just looked at practicing Christians. And I was shocked to find it didn't really go up that much. Only 13% of practicing Christians speak God, have a spiritual religious conversation on about a once a week basis. That means if you walk into your church for whatever reason, it's been politicized, it causes arguments, only you look down the pew or the row of chairs, only about one in eight are speaking God with any kind of frequency. Then, like that's... That's just crazy to me. So why, like, I'm just thinking of the person who's like, okay, so I don't speak God. Is that really a big deal? Like, what mm. would you say to that person? It absolutely is a big deal. And that was, that was kind of my second question, because when I, when I started to write this book, I was shocked to kind of uncover this, all of this data showing that, that there was this crisis in spiritual language and sacred mm -hmm. speech and spiritual conversations. Uh, but then the, that sort of begs the question, does it matter? And for that, I had to begin researching linguistics. And that was, that was a really interesting process. All of this happened over a course of about four years. And uh, I w just went down and started reading every book I could find on linguistics. And what I found is, is that there's an, an emerging body of research that shows the link between the language we speak, the words that we use, and the ways we think, and the ways we behave. So, for example, if you live in a culture that has a future tense, uh, you're not just talking about the future, you're now thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. And you're not just thinking about the future, you're behaving in, in a way that um, acknowledges the future. So, for example, if you compare a culture that has a future tense with a culture that does not, you will find that the culture that has a future tense, people in that culture will practice safe sex more often. They will smoke less often. They will save, by and large, more for retirement. So the fact that we're talking about it means we think about it, mm -hmm. and, the, and the things that we think about shape the, the behaviors, that, that, the patterns that we express. So the result is, if you think about this from, from the standpoint of sacred speech, the less that we speak about God, about faith, about morals, about ethics, uh, about virtue, the, 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 the less that our thoughts will be affixed to those things, the less that we'll notice transcendence in mm -hmm. our midst. And even beyond that, 
the less that our behaviors and our patterns of behavior will conform themselves to that. So we talk less about courage. If we talk less about courage, we'll think less about courage. We will become less courageous. And so if you care about the inner life, if you care about spirituality, then I think you have to conclude as a matter of fact, yes, it does matter if we're not speaking God. So what are some practical things to do that? Because I imagine people might be listening to this and speaking God. What exactly, what exactly does that mean and how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what I find is, is uh, and I found this through the research in this book, is you really have to change the way you think about words themselves. Mm-hmm. So once you face a dying language, and, and the vocabulary of faith is dying in the Western world, that we know. Um, once you're faced with a dying language, you have a choice. Uh, you can either just say, hey, the way that we've understood these words is the way they should be understood. We're going to leave the meanings of these words alone. Uh, or you can begin to reimagine those words, to begin to think about how we might understand and speak those words afresh. And there are a lot of people that that feel uncomfortable when they think about that, because it means letting go of some meanings that you held dear and entering in a, a strange and uncertain wilderness. And yet that's exactly what's required of us. There's an interesting phenomenon in linguistics called comeback languages which uh, is a term used to describe languages that went to the brink of destruction, the brink of death, and they came back, they were revived. A great example of this is Hebrew. That's the one that lots of people use, but there are lots of other languages too, Irish and Hawaiian and Yiddish. Lots of languages have been to the brink and come back. One thing that we know about all of those languages is, is when they return, they return in a different form than they were once known to have. In other words, the syntax has shifted. Old words have fallen out. New words have come into being. The vocabulary is often the same, but the meanings ascribed to those vocabulary words are different. Uh, Linguists agree on this, and, and they don't agree on a lot, but they do agree on this. Every language will either change or die. It will never stay the same. And if a language does not change, a language will die. Every language will trend toward extinction or evolution. Mm -hmm. And so what I argue for in the book, uh, what can people do on a 30,000 foot level? They have to muster the courage to re-enter the vocabulary of faith, to re-engage with the vocabulary of faith, and to begin to play with those words in community, Mm -hmm. to gather their friends together around the table, to to put together uh, a space on their website, on social media, to encourage questions, encourage doubts, to to hold near to the belief that, as the rabbis, uh, ancient rabbis would say, God is in the wrestling, and to wrestle with the meanings of these words and allow them to be birthed anew in our day. Mm-hmm. So you actually do that, and a majority of the book is you go through you know more than a dozen words and kind of walk through your process. Would you be able to give two or three examples just to help people understand what you're talking about just a little bit more? Yeah. Oh, man. So you'll see that there are a lot, a lot, a lot of words yeah. um, back there. <laughs> um, sin, 
words like sin, words like mystery, uh, creed. Um, yes, the word yes is a holy word that I think people don't realize. You know, the Bible says that in him, in Christ, it was always yes. Rediscovering that word, I think, is so important. Uh, but one word that really comes to mind to me is the word pain. Mm -hmm. uh, in the midst of this, I, I chose a lot of words to reimagine. And other words I feel like chose me. And pain was one of those words. I never would have chosen it. I wish I, I hadn't been forced to choose it. Uh, but I woke up one day and I couldn't feel my hands. And if you're a writer, that's a, that's a tough spot to find yourself in. Um, uh, I couldn't feel my hands and it turned from tingling that sort of spread up the arms to pain that went to my shoulders, to my back, into my whole body. And I spent several years, in fact, in some ways still wrestle with it, really a mysterious chronic pain disorder. And what I realized in that is this was that the word pain had been used to describe something that that was different than this. For one thing, it, it was I always use the word pain to describe acute pain, pain that comes and then it goes. This was chronic pain. Uh, I also realized that we had faced a we were now facing a cultural moment where we needed to reimagine this word. We're now facing an epidemic of chronic pain in America. Uh, over 100 million people are struggling with chronic pain. And the ways in which we've talked about pain, oftentimes, in Christian communities, is not helpful. One way that we've talked about pain in some communities, if you go to some charismatic communities, if you go into communities that value faith healing, they'll talk about pain as an unmitigated bad thing. It's, it's a tragedy. It's something that you shouldn't have. You need to get rid of it. God wants you to get rid of it. Often it's a result of sin in your life or a faithlessness. So you either have too much sin or not enough faith. And this is really, it compounds the pain, this perspective, because if you have chronic pain and it doesn't go away, it feels like your fault. And you mm -hmm. become more pietistic and you try to conjure up more faith, which many people use as a, a word that means certainty. And yet the pain doesn't go away. And so you end up frustrated. You feel like maybe God doesn't love you enough. Maybe you haven't prayed hard enough. And these communities, this understanding of pain in these communities is really difficult for folks who struggle with pain. And on the other end of the spectrum, if you go into like a new monastic community or more mystics, uh, people embrace suffering. They say, man, pain is an unmitigated good thing. In fact, we, it's the primary portal through which we encounter the divine. So even in some extreme cases, you know, you have people who in, engage in self-flagellation or they go out to, you know, crucifixion, um, people who embrace and even seek out pain. And this is one of those perspectives that is perhaps it's one of those theological frames that's perhaps one of the cruelest and most callous today because it gives you no hope. It says, it says well, you should, you should enjoy this or you should experience this as a good thing. And what I did in this chapter was I really tried to reimagine pain, to take from these perspectives the truth that existed within them. And there is truth. They're not wrong. They're simply incomplete. Mm -hmm that 
in many ways, God doesn't want us to experience pain, and yet God doesn't promise us that all of the pain will be, will be removed from us in this life. On the other hand, pain is a teacher, a terrible, terrible teacher, but a teacher nonetheless. And so there has to be this understanding of pain, I think, where we acknowledge that it is not merely a gift, that it is a terrible malady that God does not wish for us. And yet, it is worth observing while it lasts that there are things that we can learn in pain that we would never learn if we were completely healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a different way to speak about pain than most people have spoken about it in the past. Yeah. So I'm thinking of the person who they're probably a little bit reluctant to, you know, as we were talking about earlier, maybe abandon the words that they know. What can they do or the people in their lives do to maybe encourage this wrestling to try to, um, to transform and give these words new meaning? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I think I would say is, is you don't have to get rid of the words themselves. I mean, there may be an extreme case where a word is just too toxic. It should be set aside for now. Mm-hmm. But uh, most of our, our, our most sacred words, words like God, even, even words like judgment or sin, which is in the book, uh, are words that have a lot of life left in them. And they point to something that is true that needs to be described, and they're important words. Uh, Additionally, we're people of the book, as we call ourselves, Jews, Christians, and sometimes Muslims all will call themselves people of the book. We value the sacred text. So yeah, okay, let's say you say, I don't wanna use that word sin anymore. Well, good luck, because you're gonna keep bumping (laughs) into it, and you're gonna have to deal with it eventually if you're engaging the text. And so what I'm calling for, in this book, or what I'm encouraging people to do is not to protect words, not to say, don't touch that word, don't touch the meaning, I want to know it as I've always known it, but also not to do what many progressives do, which is pitch words. Just say, well, we don't like the way that word's been misused, we're, we're getting rid of it, we're not going to use that word. Um, I think that instead you have to play with words, and that's a different approach. So my encouragement would be, and, and there's a whole practical appendix in the back of the book that's a great guide if you want to do this even as small groups, to get together, to, to, to begin to think about the words in the vocabulary of faith that create tension within your own community. And then to go through, there's like a little four-step process for taking that word and and naming what it has meant for you, which some people can't even do. Some people don't even know what these words mean. They just use them so often, but they, can, they can't define it for you. So start with the definition. Be honest about the problems with that definition, the ways in which that definition have been used to oppress people or, or deform your conception of God. And then the third step is reimagine it and then use it. Mm-hmm. Go out, go out and play with it in community. And if somebody says, if somebody stops and asks for a definition, please use that word, define that word, explain that word, because it's pointing to something real, something important and something that is needed, I think, in 21st century America. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to think of what can... Like, is there something, like one of the things that you talk about towards the end of the book is that speaking God is important, but 
it's not enough. We need to do something after that. Can you kind of talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is uh, this is this is sort of the interesting point about this book, because I believe words are central to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's a there's a famous quote attributed to uh, often attributed to St. Francis that says, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Whoever said it, it's one of the bad quotes of all time um, <laughs> because it's sort of silly. Uh, you cannot transmit the gospel without words. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Now, what you can do, what you have to do is you have to hang flesh on those words. But God made us speech people, mm-hmm. calling us into being with divine speech, creating us in God's image with words, and giving us the power to use words to create worlds ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it is just central to who we are. It's also central to the faith. It's the way that our faith produces progeny. If you're listening to this and you're a Christian, it's not because there was somebody who uh, you, you saw serving at a soup kitchen and you said, I think I'll be a Christian, and you started going to church and that was it. There were words always associated in that process of conversion that somebody said something to somebody who said something to somebody who said something to somebody who said something to you Mm -hmm. and combined with some behaviors or some action, some visible display of how that those words have transformative power, you entered into this journey to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. So. I think words are incredibly important. And yet, what I don't want to to do is to become uh, an idolater of words, an idolater of language, as if that's the end-all, be-all, as if we can just talk about faith and somehow that we have lived the fullness of faith, as if faith's primary muscle is the mouth. Mm-hmm. And I think that is not true. I think I think that 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 faith is 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 exercised in the mind as well. I think it's also exercised in the mouth and in the hands and the heart, the body. That that actually, what we have to do at some point is we have to quit talking about grace. We have to quit talking about love. We have to quit talking about justice and start living it as well. Mm-hmm. So that we have to pair those words, and maybe I should say it this way, we have to quit just talking about those things. Yeah. And we have to begin, we have to begin embodying those things. And I think that is the message of the incarnation, which is that God didn't just give us words. God gave us the word made flesh. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you wish that you could add to the book, you know, because I know that there's kind of a lull period between, you know, you finishing the book and the book being published. Is there anything maybe that you've discovered recently or just been thinking about that, man, I wish I could have wrote this or added this chapter? Yeah, you know, I, there were, there were, the book, the book was already, you know, at its word count, uh, but there were so many words that I started to write and just couldn't, there was no space for them or I mm-hmm. did write and there was no space for them. Um, so there were, there were a lot of other words that I would have liked to have included in that. And maybe what I'll do 
at some point is just write those out as essays and publish them anyway. Because I think the list of words, the, the 17 or 19 words that I have in the book, don't even begin to sort of um, penetrate the, the yeah. vast vocabulary of sacred words, sacred language. And so I would love, what I really would love is not just for me to write those things. I'd love to see other people start writing those things. Uh, I also guess I, I, I hope that I did a good enough job making this practical. And what I want people to do, I think, I think people will find this book interesting because the data is there. I think the thoughts are, are, are appropriately provocative. And I'm finding that it's timely. Uh, everybody that I talk to about this goes, man, I know how that feels. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I've got, I, I live that. I struggle to speak God in my everyday life. So I think it's needed and I think it's timely. It has, it's come not a moment too soon. But uh, I hope that I equip people well to do this in their own lives because this book, you know, you read a lot of Christian books and most Christian books are obsessed with providing the right answers. Mm -hmm. And I was obsessed with asking the right questions. And what I hope is, is not that they go, yeah, 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 yeah. The way that Jonathan talked about mystery is right. What I hope they'll do is, is they'll say, yeah, you know what? I need to wrestle with that word. And they'll go and they will do it themselves, coming to their own conclusions about what that word should mean for us in our day. Mm -hmm. Did I equip people to do that well? Well, I guess we'll find out on, <laughs> on August the 14th when the book comes out and we see, we see what people say. Yeah. Um, talk, talk a little bit about the role that community plays in, you know, asking these questions and wrestling, because, you know, I'm sure some people, they're like, great, I'm going to go do this. And maybe they just, you know, have all their questions to themselves or they leave it kind of processing internally. But talk about how community has helped you in even wrestling through some of these words. Yeah, so this, this, this transformational approach to language that I talk about in the book is not new. It's, it's very old. Uh, it's been lost. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you look even at the, the ancient Jewish Midrash, and in fact, the New Testament is really just a form of Midrash. It's uh, an imaginative approach. You know, um, the, word, the word grace that was a word that was used, but it was reappropriated in the New Testament. The word sin is actually used, and I talk about this in the book, it's actually used in radically different ways than it ever would have been understood in, in, in ancient Jewish communities when, when the, the Old Testament writers were, were writing. And so you're finding that the New Testament is really playing with language in an incredible way. Uh, early Jewish communities and early Christian communities all engaged in this imaginative approach to language, which I talk about in the book as well. The problem is now is that we are children of Merriam-Webster. We are post-Enlightenment thinkers. And so we think if there's a word, it should have a definition. That definition should be fixed. It should be that definition for all time. And that is neither the way that language works nor is it the way that language has ever worked. Uh, now, when you look at this transformational approach to language, what you also find is, is that concurrently with the rise of the Enlightenment, uh, there was this rise, particularly in the Western world, of rugged individualism. Mm 
So not only do we have a dictionary telling us what a word should mean for all time, I'm the only one that has to be a part of that process. Uh, if I want to know what a word means, I, as an individual, go to the shelf and pull off a dictionary or Google it on my phone, and that's it. That settles it. I'm the only person involved in that process. Uh, ancient communities would wrestle with these words. Uh, particularly, I think, ancient Jewish communities are, were, were fantastic at this, that they would get around and question. They believed that every word had multiple meanings, that it had the meanings that we have ascribed to it, the meanings that we do ascribe to it, and the meanings that we haven't even discovered yet. And so they would begin to think about and debate uh, about what these words should mean for us. I think that's a lost art. So what I would love for someone to do is, is not to just read this book in isolation. I think that's, that'll help you insofar as it goes. Mm -hmm. But not just to read this book in isolation, put it down and go, now I get it, and change their own personal life on an individualistic level. I would love for people who uh, are connected to individuals from all manner of life, from all walks of life, to people that they work with, that they're connected with, people in their neighborhoods that they're connected with, people at their children's school that they're connected with, that they would invite them into community in an open-handed way, and they would begin inviting them into an imaginative process, uh, wherein I think you would have these little factories uh, that would be producing uh, new energy that would drive forward the language of faith. I, I think that would be the end goal for me. And that's what I encourage people to do. There's this appendix in the book about, you know, um, a practical, a how-to guide for seekers and speakers. Mm -hmm. And it gives like, you know, uh, a four-step process, T-A-L-K, and an acronym. Uh, I, think, I think that is what I hope people would do in community and not by themselves. Mm -hmm. What surprised you the most while writing this book? Oh, man. Um, what surprised me the most? You know, I, I, it's funny. Nobody's asked me that question. But the first answer that comes to mind is the more that I, I, when I, when I wasn't stopping to observe what I was saying, and the tensions that I felt, not only was I failing to wrestle with those words and their meanings, I was failing to wrestle with the deeper realities that those words point to. Um, this was not just a journey to understand, quote, pain, end quote, quote, sin, end quote, quote, mystery, end quote. It wasn't just interacting with those words. It forced me to go deeper into the things that those words represent. This was a journey into the heart of brokenness and darkness and uh, the sin that we see all around us. It was a journey into the midst of grace, a journey into the midst of hope, uh, a journey into the midst of mystery. And I did not expect that this book, that writing this book, and, and I think you can almost see that as you start to read it, that it begins, though it's deeply personal, it begins so uh, conceptual. And as the book goes on, 
it really moves, it, it migrates from the head down into the heart. And you begin to see that. I think what God required of me as I wrote this book was, God said, you're not just gonna write words, you're gonna live this out. And uh, I, I, I had to brush up against all of these words. Many of them knocked me down, knocked me over. Uh, many of those encounters I still have not recovered from yet. And I think it didn't just transform my vocabulary of faith. I think it transformed the faith behind my vocabulary. And I think that's what I really hope will happen with people in this book, that they will not just encounter these words, but they'll encounter the God behind those words and amid those words. That's really what I hope for people yeah. who read this. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, just as we're wrapping up, um, we always have a few questions that we love to ask people. The first one is, what's something that you've started doing recently that's helping you either personally or professionally right now? Oh, man, what is something that is helping me? I'll tell you something that's helping me. I, I, am, I, have all, I grew up in a home where I was just taught to read. And the problem is, is, and I think a lot, of your, a lot of your folks will understand this, if you're in business, if you're in ministry, if you're a writer, you tend to, um, you're choosing what you're reading. First of all, if you're reading at all, if you're not reading, <laughs> go, go start reading. Because I do think, I've never met a leader that I admire who's not a, also a reader. Mm -hmm. um, but you're choosing what you're reading based on what you're researching. Or it's all built around productivity, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to be better in my job, so I'm going to read a book. I'm going to read books on how to run the teams better, or 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 uh, how to uh, you know how to preach better if I'm a preacher, or if I'm a writer, it, it's either how to write better, or I'm researching the subject that I want to write about, and all of that's fine. But having completed this writing project, and now I've got another one that I'll have to. Uh, I'll have to do soon. I don't know when, uh, but I, I've got a contract for another book. So I'm hoping uh, the idea comes to me. Uh, <laughs> but the, 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 the thing that I'm getting to do now is to read um, for leisure and I'm getting to read things I enjoy. And I think that's really, really important that, that you recover um, the enjoyment of reading, that, yeah. that reading would not just be a pragmatic act. What what are some of the things that you're reading right now? Oh gosh, well I was I am uh, I am reading I'm trying to see this uh, some of my books over here. I've been reading a lot um, on outsiders mm -hmm. and strangers and this motif in the Bible of outsiders and strangers. This one I was reading a book last night about that. There's a book by um, it's called Stranger God, which is by um, Richard Beck teaches, mm -hmm. uh, he, he wrote a great book on disgust. If you've never read that book, you should read that book. Um, but he wrote a book called Stranger God about God being present in a stranger. And I found that to be fascinating. Uh, I'm also reading a few books on words still, just because... I just feel like I'm engaging them in, in new ways. There's an old book by the, the brother, I think, of Thornton Wilder. I can't remember his name. It's also Wilder. <laughs> and it's on um, the rhetoric of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I've been reading that. I really um, enjoy that. I've been reading a lot of books on pain um, because 
that's my situation now yeah. and uh, trying to understand that better. So I'm still, still uh, reading on that. Um, yeah, I always have like 30 books going <laughs> at one time. I'm, I'm a little bit of the same way. I have about, not 30, but definitely more than one going on at the same time. Oh, yeah. what, what advice would you give to someone who is trying to learn that the most that they can? What advice would I give? Hmm. That's an interesting, that's a big question. Yeah. For one. But advice that I would give people who are trying to, you know, I think, um, and this goes back to something we talked about earlier about, um, you know, individualism, uh, which is uh, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten, I got growing up, which was when my dad was ripping off a guy named Solomon, but it's just to seek wise counsel. I think too often, uh, particularly those of us who, who fancy ourselves thought leaders, we can become um, unteachable. We can um, insulate ourselves from anyone who would speak honestly to us. So we just surround ourselves with people who make us feel good about ourselves. Uh, we, 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 we become know-it-alls who can't take criticism. And I think having people, now this doesn't mean listening to everyone, by the way, like mm -hmm. just like at Joe knows best uh, on Twitter, <laughs> I don't, that, I'm not interested in listening to that person because I don't know that person and that person doesn't know me. But I do keep people in my life who can, who can speak into it or at least feel free to speak into it. And outside of the things that would be like traditional learning tools, Go and get a master's degree, reading, reading and buying books, researching things on the internet. I would say the most important thing is to remember that the best teachers are often people, mm -hmm. um, that you're tapping into a deep well of experience, not just knowledge. And I think that's huge. If you could have everyone learn one thing, what would it be? Oh my gosh, if I could have everyone learn to do one thing. Ooh. to take risks. Uh, this is the first thing that comes to mind, mm -hmm. you know, and I, maybe it's because I'm thinking that, you know, having just come out of this book, when I, when I decided to move to New York, I had a friend uh, who had moved here, uh, who had several children and one had special needs. And I said, why did you move to New York? And she said, well, you know, there, there comes a point in life when you hear a whisper. And it's totally a legitimate life decision to say no to that whisper. But if you do, eventually it goes away and it never comes again. And that conversation was really the reason I moved to New York, because I started to think, is New York my whisper? I have always wanted to move here. And I started to think about all, all the people that I knew who, who they, had, they had not a whisper, but they had memories of a whisper. I always wish I would have... Uh, moved to New York. I always wish I would have gone back to school. I always wish I would have had another child. I always wish I would have reconciled with my father. And, and it wasn't like that was pressing on them now. It's just the memory of when it was pressing on them. Mm -hmm. And I thought most people have a choice in life to become people who take risks or not. And if, and if you don't take risks, then you have to accept that you're going to have to deal with a certain amount of regret. If you do take risks, 
then you have to uh, deal with a certain amount of failure. Mm. And I and you're not you cannot escape either one of those. You're either going to risk things and fail, or you're going to fail to risk things, <laughs> and you're going to end up with regrets. Yeah. And I just decided early on that it is better to whenever I exit planet Earth, uh, I want to. I, I think I can cope with failure more than I can cope with regret. I don't want to be a person who dies with a mountain of regrets. Yeah. And then finally, what are you learning right now? Ooh, what am I learning right now? Well, I'll tell you what I am learning. I am learning to trust God in uncertainty. I, I have no idea. And, and I know this sounds so... Uh, maybe trite, because if it just always goes back to your job, but it really, it's just where, it's just where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. um, this book, I don't know what it's going to do. Will people like it? Will they not like it? It's one of the most vulnerable things to put yourself out there, but also like, will it sell? Are people going to buy it? Uh, I have no idea. And uh, all I can do is put it out there and trust to do everything I can do. You know, my dad used to say this phrase going up, and I'm sure he got it from someone else. He said, uh, he would say, son, all you can do is all you can do, and all you can do is enough. Mm -hmm. And I've come to live by that. You have a certain amount of capacity as a human being at any point in time based on your circumstances, your talents, and your passions. And, the, and, and once you're at 100%, you're doing all you can do. That's it. And just because the person next to you is able to put out more or get better results, you do all you can do and then rest in the fact that that's enough. And I feel like I've done everything I could to really live out the words in this book. I took my time on it. I crafted the prose carefully. I got lots of feedback. Uh, I've done everything I can do. And I'm just now having to learn to rest in the enoughness mm -hmm. of that process. And we'll just have to see if that works. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for being on the Learner's Corner podcast today. If people want to continue to learn from you or find the book, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, you know, you can buy the book, well, as they say, wherever books are sold. <laughs> uh, if you want, I've got a lot of giveaways at, my, uh, at a website called speakgodbook.com. So if you go to speakgodbook.com and buy the book, uh, you'll be entered in for a chance to win a lot of different uh, giveaways and prizes. You'll get a lot of stuff for free regardless. And uh, if people want to, they can follow me um, at jonathanmerritt.com. All of my social media is up there. You can subscribe to my newsletter there. I've got a newsletter called The Faith and Culture 5, where I send people, kind of like the skim for Faith and Culture, where yeah. you... You send people like the five links of the stories they need to know this week because people are busy. So I kind of go through and call the headlines for them and pass those on. So uh, I'd say either log on to my website or go to speakgod.com or come yell at me at, on Twitter. People love to do that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you. You have a great day. Caleb J. Mason, you were part of that podcast episode. What's your takeaway? My takeaway is just being willing to have the courage to re-examine the words or as Jonathan, you know, kind of says the God speak, the God words, the religious words that we have and taking a look at them, evaluating them, see if they truly do mean today what they mean and what do we need to change in order for people to have a better understanding of what those words truly mean. You know, I was just listening um, to a podcast with um, one of our friends, Stuart Hall, um, who's been on the shout podcast out Stuart. before shout out Stuart. And he was having a conversation, um, 
I think on the DYM uh, Create Podcast, we'll link to that episode in the show notes. And they were having a conversation about the word um, worship. Uh Uh-oh. And what the word worship truly means. That's a loaded word. It is. It's a loaded word. It's a word that I would say needs re-examined. And they were talking about this idea, and we've even talked about this as well, of how worship for many people means singing. Yep. But how worship is so much more than singing. Worship is a lifestyle. Yep. And really us communicating that and reevaluating that word and helping people understand that worship is not just singing songs. It is a lifestyle. And so just being willing to evaluate those words and everything, that's one of the things that really stood out um that really stood out to me so let us know what stood out to you let us know some of your takeaways maybe you have some words that you thought you know what these might be some words that i need to personally uh meaning you not me necessarily uh but if you have any suggestions for todd you can send them todd's way too um just just let us know some of the words that you're re-examining as well and kind of what your journey currently is as well thank you so much for listening to the podcast today again let us know how we could continue to improve let us know what we learned and the best way for you to do that is by leaving a rating writing a review or hitting us up on so on any of our social media channels thanks so much for listening to the podcast my name is caleb mason and my name is todd Ixenball. and until next time keep learning and keep growing deuces y'all